We've been uh, going through the second book of Corinthians, which is a book out of the uh, New Testament, and a book that Paul wrote about 2,000 years ago, and uh, we've been seeing what uh, the Holy Spirit has inspired Paul to write for us, uh, which is applicable for us today. And uh, let me ask you this, have you ever been involved in some stuff in your life that you knew was not right? You knew it wasn't right. And then someone came along and asked you uh, a couple of questions of why you're doing what you're doing. Why are you getting involved in this stuff that you know is not right? They've sort of put a bit of a spotlight on you a little. Just, just come along and ask that question. How did you respond when they did that? Did you sort of duck and wee to sort of squirm your way out of it and sort of maybe make an excuse for why you're doing that? Or did you own up to with honesty... And thank God that someone was loving enough to come and talk to me about what I was going, what I was getting into, and how I can go about change, and how I can go about change. Well, this is where we're going to find Paul today, in the second book of Corinthians, uh, in chapter seven. So, if you've got your Bibles, uh, go there, please. With me, we're going to start reading from verse two, and we're going to read through to the end of the chapter. Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest. But we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Just stop there for a second. Isn't that an amazing verse that Paul just said? Fighting without, fear within. Sometimes we think about Paul, he was just like some superman. What does he say there? He actually had fears on the inside. Fighting without, fear within. Let's read on. Verse 6. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief, so you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because of his spirit, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus was proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. 
Uh, God, we just thank you that we can gather together this morning here at the Senior Citizens Rooms. We thank you, Lord, that the church is your people gathered together. And Lord, we have this great privilege now to come and uh, hear your words. So we ask, Holy Spirit, please come and bring power to your word. Power to change. Power for us to be honest about our lives. And power, Lord, to engage with what you do in our lives to bring change. But we all want to change. We all need to change. And you desire for us to change. So I ask now as we just look at this chapter here and what's happening in the, in the city of Corinth and the church there, Lord, and everything they've been up to, and Paul writes this letter, how they responded with repentance and change. God, we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't know about you, but you read that there, and I just love Paul's emotion as you go through that chapter. You just see lots of his emotions sort of spilling out through that chapter there. He loves the Corinthian church, despite the dramas and the challenges he had there with them. Uh, And he loves the people there which are involved in that church. And that is what the church truly is at the end of the day. It's the people gathered there in Christ's name. Uh, But having said that, Paul doesn't allow his feelings or his emotions, as it were, to run away and get out of control. Uh, Paul keeps his feelings and emotions in check uh, with his thinking and uh, with his mind. And today we see him here to continue to address the Corinthians in this way. Uh, The church at Corinth is a blessed church in many respects. Uh, It's a church that has some really powerful communicators. There's some great speakers who are involved in this uh, church at Corinth. They've also got some very wealthy um, believers who are contributing for the growth of the gospel here in Corinth as well. And they actually have spiritual gifts going gangbusters. If you read back into uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, they're a a church full of the spiritual gifts at that time. But at the same time, while all that's happening and the church is blessed, the church is suffering. Suffering with division. There's sort of fighting within here about different sort of um, political groups. Not so much the political groups, but different sort of parties. As in, I'm the party of Apollos and Paul and Peter and whatnot. Uh, The the poor are getting abused in this church at the same time in Corinth. Uh, Sexual immorality is going on unchecked in this church as well. And uh, people are also taking legal action against each other in the courts. And there's a whole group sort of... um, Ganging up against Paul. Now, as much as there's blessing, there's lots of division and challenges in this church at Corinth at the same time. Paul loves the church at Corinth. So he writes to them to address some of these issues and many others. And what we see here in chapter 7 are the results of Paul's letters. Uh, The Corinthians have received the letter here and they are stung by Paul's letter. They are literally stung by Paul's letter. They are stung into action. They get honest about their sinful living when they are confronted by it. And now they're committed to repentance. They're committed to change their ways. And from this change, from this repentance, they experience joy and comfort that the gospel brings to them. So we're going to look at that today as we sort of step our way through this chapter here and see what's happening uh, with Paul and the Corinthians. Uh, Firstly, we're going to look at the letter. Uh, The biblical scholars tell us that they think Paul wrote four letters to the church at Corinth. Now, you look in your Bibles, in the the New Testament, it's got 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. There's two missing letters, they believe, that that aren't uh, there. And that's totally okay, because the Holy Spirit only intended us to have Corinthians 1 and Corinthians 2. But we still think about what may have been in those letters. And Paul makes mention here in that letter, if you look in verse 8, he says this, For even if I uh, made you grieve with my letter... I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you. See, you see the word letter there twice. He's written a letter to them, which we don't have today. But somewhere along the line, we believe Paul has written a fairly strong letter 
to the Corinthian church. Uh, we actually, or the scholars call it a severe letter, where they've really sort of pulled out um, and Paul's addressed some pretty heady stuff at that time. We don't have all the details on this letter at all, but we, we have a fair conjecture that it was calling out their sinful living and all their dramas were going on at Corinth at the time. We can actually see a bit of background, though, to this letter. If we go back to chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, and Jerry will put that up for us there as well, uh, we see a bit of background here where Paul was writing this letter from and what he was thinking and feeling at the time. And he says this, For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. He had heard some really bad news about what was going on in Corinth. He said, I can't bear to go back at this time. I'm just going to do this. He says, For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I pained? And I wrote as I did. He's saying here what's behind his writing. So that when I come, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you, this is the severe letter, we think, out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears. He's having to address some pretty difficult stuff in Corinth. Not to cause you pain, unnecessarily that is, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So we get a bit of background here from this letter that Paul's writing to the church. It's a hard letter for Paul to write. It's a difficult letter. It's a very confronting letter, but he writes it out of a heart that loves them. Paul's received some distressing news what's going on in Corinth, so he writes back to them with the whole view that they would own up to their behaviour. And you see, this is what a loving person does, isn't it? A loving person doesn't sit idly by... And, and allow someone else to destroy their lives through broken living. We don't do that, do we? If you're a parent, you've got a son or daughter who's involved in maybe drug abuse or something like that, you don't sit by and just let them waste their lives on drugs. You try and intervene. You try and come alongside them and actually let's bring the issue out in the open and let's talk about it. You do that because you love them. You don't let p- things happen idly while people are destroying their lives. You actually get in there and you talk about it and bring uh, up the difficult things that need to be done. That's what Paul's doing. Uh, He didn't take joy in bringing this bad news to them. He does it with a heavy heart, but nonetheless, he does it. Paul does this because he's got a relationship with these guys to write to them and to share this truth with them. So this is where Paul is with this difficult letter, this severe letter with the Corinthians. He sent this letter to them to awaken them to what they're up to, so in the hopes that they would change because their lives were not in step with the gospel that Jesus had redeemed them to. Let's think about the response then, because we can see the response actually somewhat here in verse in chapter 7, uh, the response to this, this letter of Paul's, uh, as they take on board his difficult letter. The truth that Paul lovingly presented them, it did hurt. It stung. It caused pain. It caused sadness. It caused all these things amongst the Corinthians. Uh, look in verse 7. You see there the, the word mourning. They were mourning over this letter that Paul had sent them. And in verse 8, we see this word there, grieved. These are the responses here from the Corinthians. A couple of very strong words. Mourning is like deep loss and pain as experienced in death. They felt this as they read this letter from Paul. And grieved also is like sadness, like when somebody's hurt emotionally. As they've read this letter from Paul, they're feeling this at the same time. But this response is totally right. It's totally right. It's absolutely right that if we're living in a broken way that's dishonouring to God, that we should feel grief about that. We should feel something is wrong. This is a right feeling, and this is the way we should feel. 
Now, the world probably won't tell us that. It'll tell us something different. It'll say, when you get your bad feelings, whatever they may be, just get over them as quick as you can and start loving yourself again and just live love, live, love who you are and live life like that. Just, just get over it. Just deal with that. Don't dwell on these negative feelings. That's not how Jesus deals with us through the gospel. He wants us to be honest about ourselves and honest about our lives. Initially, when the Spirit brings the gospel to bear upon us, it should disturb us in some way. It should unsettle us in some degree. When Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost, uh, just after the coming of the Holy Spirit, when the New Testament church was born, it tells us his hearers in response to Peter's preaching that day was, they were cut to the heart. Something had disturbed them. Something had sort of upset them. They were grieved and they were pained. And so they should have been. Because Peter, when he was speaking that day, had just told them, you've killed the Lord's Messiah. You've put to death the Messiah of God, Jesus Christ. They thought, what have we done? The Spirit was beginning to bring to bear upon them what the gospel was all about. It was actually, we've done something wrong. It's similar here for the Corinthians. Their grief is that, get, that their sinful, broken lives, they've let down God. They've let him down. They've sinned against God. This is what their initial grief is about. It's not about sinning against each other, although that's part of it. Primarily, it's because they've sinned against this God who's uh, so gloriously rescued them. Jesus has redeemed them from this sinful enslavement to broken living. But now, as it were, the Corinthians are returning back to it again, all over again. So the point is this. When Jesus has made such a priceless sacrifice as he has in giving up his life on the cross to rescue us from God's judgment and to transform us into the image of his holiness, how can we return back to broken living and not feel any tinge of hurt in that? When Jesus has poured his blood out upon the cross to redeem us from broken living, how can we return back to that broken living and not feel any sort of pain or twinge of hurt in causing Christ. We should feel bad. We should feel saddened. We should feel grieved about this. Paul's brought the truth to Corinth, and the Holy Spirit, through that letter, has brought conviction upon their hearts. Not condemnation. There's a difference here between conviction and condemnation. Condemnation means like it's condemned, it's all over. Conviction is different. Conviction is, yeah, okay, I can feel I've done something wrong. So it's not condemnation, it's conviction. And it's God's design for us to feel this conviction or the weight of our sin. Look in verse 9. It says this, Paul's talking again, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. He says, next, for you felt a godly grief. So that you suffered no loss to us. He felt a godly grief. God wants us, God wants us to feel the weight of our sin. It's a godly grief. It's a God-directed grief. And that's a good thing. Because God is working in this grief for his good purposes and for the restoration of our souls. It's right that we should feel bad about things we've done wrong. Imagine if we didn't. Imagine if we had no, if nobody in the world had bad feelings about doing things wrong. Could you imagine the anarchy and the lawlessness that would take place? 
There'd be nothing there guiding us. Think, well, I've just now this doesn't feel right. I shouldn't do this. If you didn't get those feelings that this is wrong, people would just go off and do all sorts of things. It's like animals that just go and attack. They, they don't have a mind to rationally think: is this a right thing or a wrong thing? It just goes crazy. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that we feel um, this remorse or sadness for doing wrong things. And we see here that God is working in this response of this grief. And he says that that leads to repentance. See it there in verse 9 as well. Repentance is a command of God toward us who've walked away from him. Repentance also is a beautiful work that the Spirit does in us in transforming our hearts. Now, it's an old word. You might think, what does repentance mean? It seems like it's out of the old King James Version Bible. Well, it's actually in the ESV Bible as well. What does it mean? Jesus comes onto the scene in Mark's Gospel and he says, repent and believe in the Gospel. What's Jesus saying here in that by saying, repent? Often the word carries with it the idea of sorrow or grief. And we actually see that here in this passage. It's very uh, uh, clear for us. But we're told here that this grief, which is part of repentance, part of it, we're told here this grief leads to repentance. So that can't be the repentance on its own. There must be something else that's involved with repentance other than just this grief or this sorrow. There is. Repentance in its true meaning is a change of mind. It's a change of mind. I was going in that direction, I've repented, and now I turn around and I go in that direction. I'm going in this direction, I change my mind, and I now go in that direction. It's a change of mind. But what we don't see here, in even that demonstration of repentance, is the force of change. The force of change when that's happened. When it comes to the Holy Spirit working in the gospel, it isn't just a simple change of mind, just like it's a little simple thing that you do. When the Spirit brings the gospel upon us, he works a much deeper and radical change within us. Not just a mere change of the mind, it's a radical, sincere, total shift of our whole being in repentance. The change of mind from the Spirit of God through that entirely works its way right throughout our whole being, our whole person, both in our heart and in our mind. And we are radically changed in this idea of repentance that takes place. We change the way we think, we change the way we speak, and we change the way we act. We do it in an entire manner. We don't leave some bits untouched. Repentance, change of mind, change of heart, works through our entire being. And that's what's meant here by this. So when Jesus uh, comes onto the scene in Mark's Gospel and says this, the kingdom of God is at hand, now repent and believe in the Gospel, Jesus is saying this, you need to change your mind entirely and live in a whole new direction. You were living in a self-direction, but you now need to live in a Godward direction. Why? Because the kingdom of God is here. You need to repent. You need to change everything, is what Jesus is saying here in this idea of repentance. Now, in conversion of being a believer, there's a first time repentance on that initial stage of being born again when the Holy Spirit does that supernatural work on us and renews us in initially, we turn and we just have a new direction altogether. So there's a there's a, a first time repentance, but there's also an ongoing repentance in our lives as well, a continual turning and a continual changing. 
Uh, the great reformer Martin Luther said, "Life, the Christian life is a life of repentance, continually turning and continually changing. And this is precisely uh, where the Corinthians are at the moment. They're in this ongoing place of repentance, this ongoing place of change. They are followers of Jesus, no, no question about that at all, but currently it's like their lives are sort of just turning back towards they were, the way they were living previously. So they've got to try and pull them back again, as it were, to sort of keep that gobbled direction. So Paul writes this letter to them, challenging their lives with the truth of the gospel, the spirits convicting them of their sinful ways, and this conviction then, not condemnation, conviction, leads them to deepen this change of their minds and change of their hearts again to follow after Christ in this ongoing sense of repentance. And here in this, Paul lists like seven marks of what this repentance looks like for the Corinthians at this particular time. Things that he sees, things that he's made aware of. What are these marks? Have a look in verse 11. He he sort of picks out these words here. He says, earnestness. (coughs) Earnestness. What earnestness? (coughs) Sin is tenacious. So we need to be serious in changing our mind. It's not a light thing. Sin is tenacious. We need to be earnest. Eagerness. What eagerness, Paul says. Because sin is so dangerous, we don't waste any time in dealing with it. We just get straight onto it. We don't say, oh, I'll deal with that later. No, no, no. Paul says eager. Indignation. Paul uses this word as well in verse 11. Indignation. Because sin is so opposed to God, we should develop a hatred for anything that's opposed to God and its destructive works. Paul says be Uh, have indignation towards it. Paul says, what fear? What fear? Talk about the Corinthians. With godly reverence, we'll understand that we cannot take sin lightly. We need to actually approach it with fear and trembling. Paul uses what longing as well? Because sin is so evil, our deepest desires should be to get rid of it. It should be a longing within us to be actually rid of this sinfulness that just keeps dragging us down this broken, corrupted thinking. Paul says, what zeal? Reflecting upon the Corinthians here as they go through repentance. With passion and with vigour and with energy, they engage their whole being in wrestling with sin to turn away from it. Paul says, what zeal? And he finishes here with this last one. He says, what punishment? Nobody likes punishment. But we need to discipline ourselves and others at the sight of sin's deadly impressions upon our lives. We need to actually get disciplined about it. Don't take it lightly because it's destructive and it will kill us if we allow sin to get its roots into our hearts. These seven marks here that Paul uses to sort of mark off what repentance looks like. It's an incredibly hard work. It's not easy. It's difficult. We are dealing with lifelong patterns of thinking that are ingrained in our hearts and our minds. They don't just undo with a click of the fingers. They just don't undo overnight. It takes long, sustained effort to do this. Change is difficult, isn't it? Nobody really enjoys change. It's hard. We get comfortable in the way we're living. We get comfortable in our habits. We may want to change. We may not like them. But still the change is really, really difficult. We just sort of get settled that. Sometimes it's just easier to put up with my broken living than go through the hard work of change. 
That's not what Jesus wants for us. That's not what the Holy Spirit works in our lives for. They work for change, to be renewed. We don't do this on our own or in our own strength, though. God grants us, through his his grace, the gift of repentance when we are born again. And then God sustains our repentance through every moment of our lives with his strength to keep turning, to keep changing. This is the godly grief that Paul says that leads us to salvation and a life of growing in change for Christ. Just a side note here. Paul also says this in the same passage in verse, nine, verse 10. He says there's a worldly grief that ends in death. Sometimes people ask, what's this worldly grief? We're talking about godly grief. What's this worldly grief that Paul's talking about here? Worldly grief is being caught out in my wrong actions and then feeling sorry for myself that I've now got to go through this punishment. I'm just sorry that I got caught. I wish I hadn't got caught and I just got away with it. Often you'll... Maybe he convicted criminals, sort of, you know, you won't see a lot of remorse from them. And often I'll mention there was no remorse from the person. They're sorry, but they're only sorry that they got caught and got to spend time in prison. That's a worldly grief. There's nothing there about God in that. There's nothing about faith towards God in that type of grief. And when it's like that, that grief will only end in spiritual death because you put yourself uh, only thinking from a worldly perspective and not a godly grief. And as a rule, worldly grief doesn't have the power to bring about real and lasting change. Now, often, again, if we think about these prisoners, um, these convicted criminals, they get out and they just go back to what they were doing and, and they're straight back in prison again, maybe you know, six months later or a year later. Gospel grief, however, leads to spirit-empowered repentance, which leads to real, eternal change. What's the result then of this? As we think about the letter, we think about uh, their response. We see a result also for these Corinthians as we look at them today. God in his grace produces the fruit of joy and comfort down the path of true uh, spirit-empowered repentance. Uh, In this passage alone, uh, comfort and joy are mentioned like 12 times here, mainly from Paul as he's uh, hearing what's been happening there. But also I'm sure that these guys at Corinth are experiencing the same thing. Just one example for Paul is in verse 4. He says this, I'm acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort in all our affliction. I'm overflowing with joy. But comfort and joy, they're literally in the same uh, context. Here's what happens with repentance. Uh, This change of mind. Repentance is like purifying ourselves from sin. We're working with the Holy Spirit to actually purify ourselves and sin by turning away from his evil actions. And as we continue down that course, continue in that work of repenting or changing our mind in every way, God fills our hearts with joy and comfort as part of that process. As we see God working in us, helping us to overcome the brokenness of our lives, the result is joy and comfort. We're seeing ourselves broken free from those things. As we see God working in us and helping us to uh, break free from the enslavement and the bondages of sin, because sin becomes these things that puts this enslavement or bondages around us. As we see God working in us to do that, the result is joy and comfort. Joy and comfort as we work with the Spirit through that. Maybe it works like this for you. Maybe you could be battling with pornography. And you just keep falling back in front of that screen again and again and again. And every time you do, 
you walk away feeling guilt-ridden and shameful. You just get drawn back to that school again. The Spirit deepens my grief over that sin and bondage. The truth of the Gospel keeps reminding me Jesus has redeemed me from that brokenness. He's called me out of that. He's given me the power to walk away from that. The Spirit keeps reminding me a life of purity with Jesus is always way more satisfying and fulfilling than being addicted to that stupid screen. The screen delivers me this short-term cheap thrill but leaves me messed up, burnt out, broken, and then a total dissatisfaction. And then an hour later, I just want to go back to it all over again. It's a bondage. It's a vicious cycle that we get in. But though through spirit-empowered repentance, I desire to change. The spirit works with me as I work hard to put to death those uh, desires within me and see victory over that bondage and over (coughs) that enslavement. They are broken. I'm no longer enslaved to it. And the Holy Spirit then fills me with joy and comfort as I see those chains broken in my life through his work within me. And that joy and comfort that comes from the Spirit, let me tell you, it blows away anything you might think you might get off that screen. Sure, it'll deliver you a cheap thrill, but if you're in a pure relationship with Christ and breaking those bondages, that joy and comfort will blow away anything you might possibly think you can get off that screen. It's the, refru- it's the fruit of repentance. Uh, this joy and comfort also is contagious. It's not just something that happens in the individual, it is, and that's great. In this passage alone here, we see that Titus has brought back a report of the Corinthians and their grief and their repentance to Paul after he sent this severe letter to them. And this brings joy and comfort to the whole body. Read with me there in verses 6 and 7. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal, and so that I rejoiced still more. When we see brothers and sisters in Christ uh, embarking down the path of repentance by responding to God's word and growing in God's grace, what does that do for you when you see that happening in other people's lives? You're encouraged. You actually feel joy and you feel comfort. You see people growing and uh, maturing in their faith. And when you see that, you share in this spirit-given joy. There's nothing better than to see believers growing in their faith. That actually encourages us and builds us up. And the reverse happens is when we see them struggling with sin, we actually we go into mourning with them. We sort of share in that battle with them as they're going through their struggles. But this joy and this comfort we can share with them as we see them going through the victories as well. And they are the glorious fruits that come from the sorrow and the hard work of dealing with sin but seeing victory take place. We see these fruits here of uh, comfort and of joy in the gospel and in Christ. And this is what Exchange Church is here for. This is why we gather on Sunday mornings. We gather here to make disciples of Jesus Christ for his glory. And as we've seen here, it's a vital element of making disciples is urging and encouraging followers to continue the work of repentance, to continue the work of change, not get stuck in a rut, but to move out of that and to change. We meet Sunday mornings. We meet midweek. We meet uh, in different groups. Kids out there now, uh, youth, young adults, ladies, men. All those areas in exchange are contributing to help people grow as disciples 
through the work of repentance, through the work of change. Shoulder to shoulder, standing with people to go through those battles and through those challenges so they can find victory and comfort and joy. It probably means this, in part of all that with exchange, that we're in a loving and caring relationship with somebody to have the hard and difficult conversations with, which is what we need to be. To get through repentance, sometimes you need to share what you're going through with other people and have those difficult conversations. Bring those issues out in the open and be honest about it. Now, this will probably be done best with a close, mature Christian friend. We're not asking people to come down the front and go to the microphone and just tell the world. Not at all. Some of that stuff's really hard and difficult to talk about. Find a close Christian friend, and I would say Christian, drop the quotation marks, Christian friend, true gospel believer, don't try and go through this work with people who aren't Christians because they will not give you a gospel perspective or gospel point of view. Find a good Christian friend that you can trust and talk to. Honesty is a vital element of this repentance. It's being honest about our lives. It's actually letting it all out. It may not come all out in the first conversation, but it's so vital that we actually be honest about what's going on in our lives. Speak about what's happening with that close, trusted friend. Because if you don't, if you're not honest, if you hold this stuff back, you'll actually produce, you'll progress no further than that point. You'll get stuck at the first hurdle because you're not actually being honest about what's happening in your life. Got to be honest. Got to get this stuff out on the table with your close, trusted, gospel-centered friend. Then with the Holy Spirit's power... Uh, we've got to with the Holy Spirit's power we've then got to um, to hate our broken behaviour got to develop a hatred for it and set out that we want to cut it off at the roots um, pray with your friend that you know God would give you this, the desire to really hate what you're involved in or hate what you've been up to and give you the desire to, as it were cut it off at the roots And at the same time, apply the gospel truth to that to give you that sort of uh, reframing of your mind to actually empower that hatred, as it were, to kill that thing that's trying to destroy your lives. So important. Doing it with your friend, praying and applying the gospel uh, to those broken situations. You might be saying right now, I've tried to change. I've tried to change. I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've tried. And I feel like I get a little bit down the track and then I just fall over and I just fall all the way back to it again. I can't do this in my own strength. I can't do this. And I get that. I get that because I'm no different to you. In my own strength, I am really weak. Really weak. Actually, I've got no real power at all to overcome these things. How can I possibly be called to do this? Jesus makes this possible. Jesus makes change possible. Why? You see, Jesus changed so that we could change. He always existed as the eternal Son of God. That's who he was for eternity past. The eternal Son of God. Jesus changed into the human being, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Why did he do that? He came to do that, to live the life that we could never live to overcome all of this world, to 
totally fulfill God's requirements in a perfect relationship. And then give that life up on the cross, paying for all of our brokenness, all of our sin, rising from the grave three days later. Jesus does that for us. You see, Jesus changed so that we could change. He actually gives us the power to do that. He gives us the ability and the will and the drive to change as we think on him, as we call upon him to come and to work in us for that. The gospel enables us to repent. The gospel enables us to change our hearts because it does this by reuniting us back to God and from that foundation we truly can change through the work that Christ has initially done for us. And the great uh, fruit of that, as we've said before, is this joy and comfort as we see what Christ has done for us, loving us, restored by uh, him, renewed by him, and then being changed into his image as we keep thinking through the gospel, applying this to our hearts and lives. And it says this as we wrap up here in Revelation 21, verse 7. For the one who conquers, the one who perseveres to the end, the one who takes hold of what God has given him, through the Spirit's power to change, to repent, will have his heritage, comfort and joy eternally in the presence of Christ. And I will be his God and he will be my son. We gather this morning to urge people to repent, to urge people to change, to turn away from sinful living, to turn towards Christ and to receive the joy and comfort that the gospel gives as we go down that path. Let me pray. Father, we thank you today as we see uh, the work of your spirit in the lives of the Corinthian believers 2,000 years ago. Lord, they were up to all sorts of trouble, all sorts of grief, all sorts of drama, all sorts of division and sexual immorality and broken relationships, Lord, and taking each other to court and divisions and bickering and uh, sniping, bitterness. Lord, everything was happening in Corinth. But God, you graciously, in the gospel, through Paul, writing them a difficult, hard letter, lovingly bringing up the hard things, not sweeping them under the carpet, bringing them out in the open, being honest. God, your spirit graciously worked through that truth to awaken those Corinthians, to turn away from their sinful lives and turn back towards you, Lord. And Father, as we think about it today, we see the joy and the comfort that come out of that. And they are truly the fruits of the gospel. So Lord, we ask today, please help us. Please help us, firstly, Lord, to be absolutely honest. To stop hiding things. To stop putting these things in the dark corners of our minds so that nobody ever sees them. To bring them out in the open, Lord, to speak about it. And to see your spirit working through our hearts and our lives. Lord, to deal with those things, little bit by little bit. But Lord, in that we are moving forward to put the past, as it were, behind us. And Lord, to learn to not to fall back to that past again, but to learn by the Spirit's help and the Spirit's power and the application of the gospel that we can move forward. Help us today in that, Lord, I pray. Please, please help us. Lord, for those who are battling these addictions or these challenges or these dramas or these thoughts or these memories for such long periods of time, help them today, Lord. Maybe to express that out to somebody, what they've been going through, and to begin to see healing take place there, we pray.
Father, we ask that now and we pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Simon's going to come and uh, lead us around um, 